Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb, and then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but we love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? We spend so much time in our cars. It's nice to have a car that makes you feel good. It's giving me like, you deserve to take care of yourself, girl. Honey, I just love Alexis because it's giving luxury. It just gives like, nice. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And the features on this GX, honey? Available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Ooh! Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. That's wide! Available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side-by-side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by James Doyle, a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where I ask him, who is keeping it real in Mesoamerica? 
Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. This is such an exciting episode. Our guest is incredible. The subject is amazing. Nothing new there on either front. Welcome James Doyle, who has been an archaeologist specializing in ancient Mayan art and architecture. He is currently the assistant curator for art of the ancient Americas at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. James, welcome. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having me. Yes. Okay, so, you know, I don't want you to sprain your neck, but you might when I ask my first few questions, because we're not in 101. We're in like Mesoamerican, like preschool. What are we talking about when we say Mesoamerican societies? Like, where are we? What are we talking about? Where in the world is it? So where are we? Um, we are thinking about what was going on in basically North, Central, and South America before European colonization. So uh, Mesoamerica is a term that was coined to describe the cultural area that basically spreads between about central Mexico and northern Honduras and El Salvador. So uh, it's it's a term, it's, it's, a, it's more of a cultural term than a geographic term. So we're looking at the societies that flourished in a couple of thousand years in what is now central Mexico into Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, and El Salvador. And the uniting cultural traits that we're thinking about are the use of a numeral system. So they were writing numbers numbers using bars and dots. The dots are one, the bars are five. It's pretty simple. Um, But that was uh, spread throughout the region. And we also have hieroglyphic writing. So just like in ancient Egypt, in other parts of the ancient world, we have people recording their histories and their narratives about life in writing. That that is speech recorded in, in hieroglyphs. And we also have sort of ceremonies like the ball game. So this is another thing that unites Mesoamerica as this region that we think about because the cultures there had similar types of architecture, including a ball court. And of course, rubber balls were invented in Mesoamerica. So you're welcome world for that. Um, and there, the ball game was played in this area. So it, it was sort of a way, Mesoamerica is this conceptual umbrella to think about what united the peoples, the ancestral indigenous peoples of Mexico and Central America for uh, really starting around 2000 BC to essentially the present, of course, because we have a lot of living traditions today. They still exist now. There are thriving Mesoamerican cultures that exist like contemporarily, but they started about 2000 BC. Is that correct? What I'm hearing you say? Yeah. So that's, yeah, around 2000 BC, what we see is people coming together to build things together. Um, and that's, as an archaeologist, that's what we can measure, right? So people building community spaces and larger buildings for gatherings. That really happens in the second millennium BC. Um, and really the, the, the things that people may have heard of as far as large pyramids, architecture, uh, civilizations, the, the sort of peak of construction and textual production was about, uh, I would say, seven or 800 AD and in parts of Mesoamerica. But of course, when the Spanish arrived to Mexico in the early 16th century, there were large empires and societies all throughout this region. Um, so it's, it's really, it, what's, what I like about thinking about Mesoamerica is this total parallel story of art and architecture and society and community that was, you know, completely separate from the rest of the world and doing their own thing, but 
united, like I said, by these threads, these cultural threads that make a sort of Mesoamerican identity in a way. Uh, that is amazing. So we learned from Professor Zhui Guo about like early China that like, obviously I struggle with time. So like what's ancient and then what's like, pre- what are like those definitions again? Yeah. So we say ancient Americas more broadly, that's generally anything before colonization. And so mm. what, what we look at with Mesoamerica between about, um, you know, one and a thousand, it has been known to researchers as the classic period because it was sort of compared to classical Mediterranean societies and, and empires because you see similar forms of organization of peoples. Even though, like I said, it's totally parallel and separate, uh, there are these analogies that can be drawn with some of the societies from uh, the ancient world that people may be more familiar with. So just to do like a teeny tiny like overall overview, and then we are going to hone in on that art, architecture, society, and what like zero to 1000 was like, but I literally didn't understand so much of this until like right now. So I'm just trying to wrap my non-binary brain around it. (laughs) So... 2000 BC, people start to come together in this Mesoamerican area. We start to build things. It really like all out building, building, building around seven to 800 AD or like common era. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, and then it, no one comes there from Europe until the 1500s for someone from zero to 1000, like AD or common era or whatever, to think that someday this bustling, you know, building city with languages and stuff would ever be like massively wiped out wouldn't be something that a lot of those people would have probably saw coming. Right? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, you know, what's what's fascinating is that with recent advances in archaeology, we're able to see that there were these arcs before and had nothing to do with European colonization. So, for example, the city of Teotihuacan, which is a large gridded city with massive pyramids outside of Mexico City today, it it really was built and it was around, let's say around the 400s, it was probably one of the largest cities in the world. But by, say, 700 AD, it was pretty much abandoned. So we do see Mm. that there were these cycles of sort of explosive growth, but then uh, people migrated away. People, you know, for some reason, whatever governance had brought them together was no longer working, and people migrated to other parts of Mesoamerica. So even before European colonization, there were very interesting sort of rise and fall cycles for different groups in Mesoamerica. That's fascinating. So... Let's start off at one, because that's a good number. So it's 1 AD. We are in Mesoamerica. Are there, like, several, like, Game of Thronesy, like, you know, competing factions to, like, build the most gorgeous pyramid as everyone kind of friends? Like, who are the players? What's the deal, like, in that time? Definitely. Um, we, we see a lot of different types of competing city-states. So if you think about in central Mexico, we have something going on that's much more of an urban feel. There's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a central place. But for example, in the 
southern part of Mexico in Oaxaca, we have several different competing city-states around 1 AD. And so they're not, there's not really one place that becomes the dominant sort of cool place you want to live. Um, and similarly, in the Maya region, which is today sort of south, the most southern parts of Mexico and Guatemala, Belize, um, we have royal courts coalescing around these dynasties. I mean, it's very, it's very Game of Thrones um, because these, these are people claiming divine connections and they are claiming parts of the landscape and claiming sort of subjects, really. And they are sort of building up these narratives of why you should believe what they say, right? And then, so so we see different ways that people were coming together in Mesoamerica. And that's what I love about it, is thinking about there's not one way to look at societies in the Americas because there's there was always such a diversity. And, um, you know, you think about Maya kings and queens, they would have perhaps compared themselves to somebody in Oaxaca, but if they look over at Teotihuacan and it was more of, perhaps it was more of a collective form of governance. You have like a council of important families. Um, so there, there really is kind of these stories we can tease out from the archeological evidence that tell us different things about how people behaved, right? And how, what, what their hopes and dreams were as far as um, taking over things or, um, really just staking out their claims on the landscape, right? So Teotihuacan and then Maya and then what's Veracruz? So the Gulf Coast of Mexico, there is, again, a great diversity of societies there that sort of didn't really fit into these models that we know. And so um, we have similar traits like the ball game and things going on, but we also see they're developing their own art styles. They're developing their own architecture that is royal and dynastic, but in different ways that we see in other places. Okay, so that's the Veracruz area, and then Maya's mm-hmm. kind of like more south-south of Mexico. It's like Belize, Guatemala, like southern yes. Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Teotihuacan is right outside of, of Mexico City right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then really we're all kind of like doing different things simultaneously in different areas. And at this time, like at one, like, isn't that like, there's other stuff going on all over, which is kind of what you had just said, but this is all kind of like existing in a bubble for this time. Cause it's not dealing with like outside influences, which is really cool. But like, so like Rome exactly. is kind of going on in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have like Rome, you have Han Dynasty, you have Ptolemaic Egypt. And at the same time, you have a similar diversity of societies that have developed in the bubble, as you said, in isolation. Ah, uh, I can't, I, I'm obsessed. And then do we call their written language hieroglyphics or do they have like a cute, like Mesoamerican specific name for their written language? Well, we, we, yeah, we call them hieroglyphics, and that basically means that you're using pictures for words. And so that's kind of a, a larger term. We have different writing systems, but they are united in the numbers that I mentioned before. So people across Mesoamerica counted dates in the same way. That is so cool. I guess I always thought that hieroglyphics was something that like Egyptologists coined, but really it's like I was wrong, and it really just means using pictures for words. Fascinating. Yeah. So 
Can you tell me a little bit more about like the Game of Thronesy people going on like around one, and then like like who came out on top? Like who mm-hmm. was like it? You know, two hundred like fuck off fuckers. <laughs> like we won, and no one even knows who you are anymore because we took the crown. Like yeah. we are Mesoamerica's next top royal family. <laughs> it's it's a great question, and really, there's this long history of interaction between different competing groups that, um, for example, so among the Maya kingdoms, that's where we have the most information because we have the most text. We have the most hieroglyphic record, right? And you can think about it in a way that's a little bit of propaganda, right? You have, here I am, I'm this uh, queen, uh, I actually know her name, Lady Wakchan Ahau, that like we can read her name. So here I am commissioning a sculpture of myself standing on top of a captive from one of my rival kingdoms that I've already defeated, and I'm telling you about that in the text. Um, so we have that type of drama going on in the Maya kingdoms themselves. So you have marriage alliances, you have warfare, you have diplomatic visits, you have all the things that we think of in these dynastic really monarchs right i mean it's that's that's what they're claiming they're claiming a divine status and then so if we think about the interaction within the maya kingdoms that's one thing but then for example teotihuacan many miles away it was such an important city that there's a maya neighborhood there's a Veracruz neighborhood at Teotihuacan. So it is really like the Manhattan of its time. It's drawing people from all over Mesoamerica because they want to be a part of that. And so then you have, well, at some point, it looks like the people at Teotihuacan, and actually this is a very specific year, 378 AD, Common Era. It seems that people from Teotihuacan march into the Maya area, which they're recording on their monuments. This guy arrived in this this day. And they they are having an effect on the politics. They replace a king at a place called Tikal, Guatemala. So somebody from Teotihuacan comes in and basically axes the king at Tikal and puts a new person on the throne. So it's it's really, we have this great, Why? rich history. We don't really know. I mean, that's the, the, there's new archaeology going on all the time in these areas to try and get more of that story because we sometimes we only have the texts and what they record. So it's important to back that up with some of the physical evidence uh, from archaeology, looking at, you know, are there, is there evidence that people, for example, used, brought their own pottery with them? Or if they're... Mm. Yeah, they're making their own pottery in the way of the local people. So teasing out these stories of conflict and migration and, and interaction are one of the big priorities of archaeology in Mesoamerica these days. So the the most major, like, queen at, at a time in, like, the Maya region, like, she wouldn't necessarily be, like, running Teotihuacan, but maybe she would have, like, a representative up in, like, the neighborhood up there or whatever. Yeah. I think that that's a fair hypothesis because Teotihuacan is is a fascinating place because we don't have, we have some hieroglyphs, but they're not deciphered yet. And so we get a sense that there is a, an intense top-down leadership of the government there, but we don't know if it was one person, for example, like was there a king of Teotihuacan? There's not that evidence. So it looks like maybe these are important families kind of ruling together or, but I think, you know, people are leaning towards more, there might have been one central person at Teotihuacan. But like you said, the people in the Maya area 
they weren't subjects of Teotihuacan. They would be interacting and trading and they would send emissaries or, or diplomats, just like you would think of in other places. So um, they would they want they want in on the action, but it's not um, necessarily a top down sort of um, domination type of relationship. So in 378, was it that like someone in Teotihuacan, like I'm still trying to wrap my head around that story. So basically like there was a different city, which was called T-Call. t And so what happened again? <laughs> Just tell me what's up. So the, at T-Call, rec- the people record in the text that somebody from Teotihuacan came to the center of T-Call and on that day that he arrived, the current king died. So the assumption is that there was something sinister going on. And there was a new king that was probably related to this Teotihuacan person put on the throne there. So it really was about exerting this outside political control over a place that was very far away. And there are several possibilities, like maybe Tikal was try- getting too grand, you know, and mm. maybe they were, in the eyes of these Teotihuacan people, they needed to be sort of brought under some sort of control. Um, these are the types of arguments that people are trying to address with archaeology these days, both at Tikal and at Teotihuacan. So there are great uh, Mexican and Guatemalan projects right now working on these questions. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast hosted by Sam Goldman names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wajahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. Ooh, honey, the weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I needed to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. Honey, these premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30. They're giving you washable silk tops. I love the quality of their fabrics. It really is stunning. Oh my God. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash curious. So it's like, as far as governments of this era, it's like there was some, you know, more dynasty, some were more like tribunal. We don't exactly know everything. But what were some of the like economic and like cultural differences between these Mesoamerican areas? Great question. We we know that there were a lot of different languages spoken. So you can imagine that it was a very multilingual place and you would have had people that traded over long distances that probably spoke many languages. And so if we think about what are they trading, right? Um, 
so we we know that they're trading things like obsidian. So the volcanic mm-hmm. glass, you would actually need that at a very basic level to cut things because we don't have metal knives. We're 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 using obsidian that come from volcanic sources uh, to create blades. They're very very sharp, sort of small blades, but you're, that's what you're using to cut. In addition to other stone tools, um, jade is another thing that was very important as a commodity in ancient Mesoamerica. And so you may be more familiar with jades from, say, East Asia or other places in the ancient world. I'm familiar with jade rolling, just you know, <laughs> rolling it on my face. Yeah. Well, you should get some Mesoamerican jade because that's that's high quality. There's a source in Guatemala for jadeite, which is the the really green, beautiful stone, and it was valued early on as a luxury good. It really is something that is that was created, and they would make regalia out of it, pendants and beads, and the blue green color was important too because not it's not just a precious, valuable material. It's about the symbolism too, because jade for the ancient Mesoamericans peoples was about agricultural fertility. It's the blue green color of water. So it's about that type of connection to the landscape. And then you wearing that are claiming that connection to maize, for example, because the jade sprouts are the blue green sprouts coming out of the corn. So the, the, there are these layers uh. of metaphors for what they're trading around as far as jade. Um, and we do see feathers as well. That's, these are the kind of ephemeral things that we only get glimpses of. But we have to know, we know that people were trading tropical bird feathers over long distances as, as commodities. Because if you, want, if you want a fancy headdress with Quetzal feathers or macaw feathers, they don't live near Teotihuacan. So you need to get, you need to get on that so you can get your feathers imported. Um, and we also know that uh, marine shell equally was pe- was traded over long distances. So, you know, the beautiful sort of like corally colored spondylus shell that's this orangey, deep red, that was another very important material for peoples in Mesoamerica to make into things that they would wear and project that access to wealth and project the connections and how important you were being able to have those, those raw materials and, and make them into things. So... We also probably think they were trading chocolate. So uh, Uh, you can only grow cacao in certain areas because of the way the trees behave. But uh, it was a very important ritual drink. And so the cacao beans were being traded over long distances. So... um, the, the, those are all really uniting peoples in Mesoamerica because they're all these valuable materials for different societies, which I think I like to think of it as kind of a, a translingual uh, way of connecting the peoples. Because if you say, say you're, the, you're the king of Teotihuacan, you show up in the Maya area, you're wearing jade, you're wearing shell. So I, as somebody who lives at Tikal, know that's an important person, right? So it's, um, it's a way of projecting your importance across cultures, really, in, in Mesoamerica. I think one thing that has really stuck with me from what Jiguo told me is that, like, you know, often history is written by the winners. And so we don't know a lot of times in, like, ancient and, like, early times, like, well, what was it like if you were just, like, an everyday person? What if you weren't a king or a queen? What if you couldn't afford the shells? What if you didn't have an obsidian in your backyard? What are the sort of regular people doing, right? You know, if you're not in one of yes. these dynasties, if you're not uh, one of these sort of what we can say is like a wealthy or a higher status household. What are you doing? And what's interesting is the 
basic. So if you imagine a very basic maize farm in 400 AD in the Maya area, you would have a house and it was, it was organized in a way that was not dissimilar to the palace. So you have the foundational concepts, for example, of the four directions in the center, because the, the sort of layout of the universe for a Maya person that's living in a small, you know, wooden structure is the same that we see in the monumental architecture. So it's the kings and queens are really co-opting these ideas and building them at a monumental scale. But there was that basic connection with the people who were just farmers, just everyday farmers. So some, some recent archaeology has been addressing what are the people doing outside the cities? What, what is the relationship between commoners, what we can call, think of as like sort of common folk, and these people who are, like you said, writing their own histories? Um, so I think the important thing to think of is that they're, they're, Everything was based around maize agriculture. So you have the most humble farmers have the same cycles of planting and harvesting. And they're thinking about the calendar and the solar year in the same way that the kings and queens are doing it with this sort of mythological gloss, if you want to say. So uh, there is that sort of basic understanding because they're farming the same things. So even if you don't have access to fancy stuff, you can still you have that connection of we are maize farming peoples, right? If I was like not from an important family and I was in Teotihuacan, like, and I was myself. So like I'm non-binary. I, you know, I'm really wanting to just like wear floaty stuff. I want to like dress, I'm feeling floaty. I'm feeling texture, but I also want to suck dick. So what about that? Like, is there gay stuff? Is there non-binary stuff for people that aren't kings and queens and stuff? Like, how would I have fared is what I'm trying to say. Like yeah. wanting to go to the gay bar, wanting to also be living my gender identity truth. Like, is that on anyone's mind? Like back then, you know? So about um, gender, right. And thinking about how do we not project Western ideas of gender onto the archeological past? Because that's a, it's a real question, right? Because, um, how would we know around 200 AD in Oaxaca what people thought about men and women and non-binary and all of these questions? Um, so what we have, what do we have evidence for? So we know that, for example, in the Maya hieroglyphs, there are very specific markers for female rulers. And so they have an actual mm. prefix that is about their feminine um, identity. And it's, uh, clear because they're also said this is the mother of so and so. So it's you can sort of trace the genealogies in that way. But what's fascinating is that the, so remember the the badass queen that I spoke to you before about who's standing on top of a captive. That's a that's a monument that's fascinating because that's she's clearly depicting herself in a sort of typically male representation. And so we see that the men and women of Maya royal courts are, there's no sort of male dress and female dress. So we have to imagine that uh, there was a very different understanding of male and female. I got to stick on that point one second. There's no difference in dress. Like the outfit evidence is the same for men and women. Like 
So boys got to wear like gorgeous skirts and like headdresses and like really ornamental like necklaces and stuff. So here is what I propose. I'm going to take you to Copan, Honduras, because this is a fascinating Maya site. And the monuments were made out of a volcanic stone, so they preserved really well. And we see kings in full skirts, full headdresses. And um, we also see queens wearing the same thing. So, and you think about the, like I said, these materials of value, they are used in similar ways to adorn the body with males and females. Now, there are certain things that don't cross over. Like you would see a male in a loincloth and you would not see a female in a loincloth. But if, 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 you know, king so-and-so is in a ceremony, they could be in full like knee length or even like longer skirt that's made of beads of jade. So there have been some very interesting investigations into these images because what are we looking at? You know, is it a male sort of co-opting the sort of female power because this is a more traditional thing that a, a female would be wearing in the imagery? Or is it just a different, we're not able to access that, you know, somebody who was a viewer at the time would get it. But we have to sort of right. check, we have to check our assumptions at the door to say this is different. And so what we, what we do have is that when the Spanish colonizers arrived, we know, and even into the colonial period and into today, we have different ideas and different words to describe gender in these indigenous languages. So there's, there's, there's a lot of great anthropology and linguistics having been done about what if what if we can think about there was an America's totally separate story here and we have different ideas and there um, for example in some languages there's an ancestral concept of a mother father or a grandmother grandfather and it's it's one person embodying both of those ancestral forces um, but it's not necessarily male or female. Do you know what I mean? So um, it's. I think what I love about Mesoamerican art and writing is we can we have these great case studies for. We have to think differently. You know, we ha- we have to we can't take what we learned in elementary school and just apply it to these cultures because they were doing their own thing. So we have to. You kind of respect the um, indigenous creation of the systems that we don't necessarily have access to. If you showed up at Teotihuacan and you wanted to do your thing and wear skirts and just, you know, dance and sing, I think it would be welcomed. I mean, we see that ceremony was such an important thing that I I don't think that there would have been defined roles for um, men or women. We don't necessarily have that evidence. And we see very powerful images of more female deities at Teotihuacan, but they've got claws. They are, you know, they're sacrificing things. So, you can't associate one one-on-one with things because we just, it's, it's a different story. Well, I love that. And I think it really drives home the point that our modern understanding of the gender binary is modern and it's not the way that it has always been. And that there has been lots of different ways that lots of different cultures have approached the idea of male and female or even differentiating them at all. Do we see evidence of 
homosexual behavior happening, honey. We always, on an ancient episode of Getting Curious, we have to ask. We live for gay stuff. <laughs> we love homosexual stuff. We love it. Past, present, future. Is there any gorgeous deities of just like really Tom of Finland on Mesoamerican, like just two <laughs> guys, just really like together or, or not as much? What's, it's an interesting question. We see a lot of, so for, I'll stick with the ancient Maya because we have the most information about them from the text. Um, we see a lot of, I'll say homosocial activity. So we see, uh-huh. you know, you, you see that there is this idea that young men need, need to be grouped together and princes would sort of be in the same space. And so, um, and, and this is, you know, there's a work, there are a lot of great scholars that work on this out there in the Maya area. And you think about, well, there is, there are rare depictions of homosexual activity in Maya art. But they're they're kind of restricted to uh, very in- intimate spaces. So one of the the best examples actually was a beautiful sort of almost graffito that was in a cave. So you think about you have to go into these marginal or liminal spaces to um, represent these acts that weren't sort of in the main architectural program, right? Um, But we do see there must have been the concept of like a young men's house. And we know about this from other cultures around the world where there's something, um, and this is, uh, my graduate advisor wrote about this, so I I, I think about it a lot, because there's something unpredictable about teenage men. And so you, you have to kind of corral them and then of course there's exploration and so there are uh, there are some rare instances in which um homosexual activity between males is represented um off the top of my head i can't really think about just i want more lesbians like give me that juicy lesbian ancient not you just like and like any archaeologist out there Let's find that yeah. good old cave lesbian softcore story. Like I just need, yeah. we all need it. We need that period but drama. But I love that there's like yeah. yes, and I mean I love that we have like a a little bit of like a broke back mountain like on you know like seven to eight hundred AD and a, and, I, and it's interesting that it's like it wasn't in the main textbook, but if you go into it's some a, like you know some find some people's houses, they might be talking about it, which is adorable queer Mm -hmm. history through like the classic era, which I'm obsessed with. I can't even stand it. Okay. So what about bilingual people? Do we know about people who like, you know, if there was different languages, like, which then made me think about jobs, what were the different jobs that people would have? That's a great question. And there were definitely bilingual people. And even within, for example, the Maya kingdoms, there was probably like a prestige language. So you think about like, like a Latin, and then you have French and Italian and Spanish and Romanian, you know, that are spoken in different regions. So there, there was this sense that there may have been a lingua franca for people at a certain elite level. Uh, But, you know, like I said, there was a lot of long distance trade going on. So we know that those people and that were the intermediaries would have spoken a Mayan language here, and then they could speak uh, what the Teotihuacan people were speaking as well, because you have to have that communication. So definitely people were trading. And we know that when the Spanish uh, invaders arrived, they were successful because they 
you know, basically captured people that could speak multiple languages, that the most famous of which um, is known as Malinche, who was a, a woman from the Gulf Coast, right, that we mentioned before. And she could speak Mayan languages as well as Nahuatl, which was the language that was the Aztec Empire uh, imperial language. So th these sort of mediators would have been bilingual for sure. And thinking about people's jobs, you know, this is a great question because there's, again, just like concepts of gender, we don't want to project our concepts of economics, right, to a system that was oh. developed in a, in a totally different context. So we do see what we think of as markets, right? So we see people specializing in things and trading in things, but was it like money? You know, it, it's hard to say. And in different places, it seems like there were different economic systems in place. But, for example, there... Uh, in the 2000s, there was a spectacular set of murals found. This is, again, around 700. The site is Calakmul, Mexico. The arch rival of Tikal that I mentioned before in our Game of Thrones storyline. And at Calakmul, there were these murals that showed people in a market. And it would be this beautiful portrait of a lady. She's got her little traveling hat on because we all need to take care of our SPF, right? And she was the vendor of salt. For example, and it says the title of the hieroglyph says she of the salt. And then she has a counterpart on another part of the mural that's this is the lady who vends ceramic vessels. She's got a basket full of pottery and she's the woman of the ceramic vessels. And we see a woman that does just maize atole. It's like um it's like a I don't know how to say it. it's like a soup, you know, thinking about like a hearty, hot meal made out of maize. There she is, and she's got her product there. So we do know that there were specializations of people, but was that, did I come to the Atole lady and give her cacao beans like I would give money today? I don't know, you know, or did I trade her obsidian blades? You know, was, what was the sort of day-to-day -day economy like? We're still teasing that out. So we don't know if there was a currency versus like a bartering thing. Exactly. Some people have argued that shell beads would have been currency as long as, you know, as well as cacao beads. Um, but it's not that clear. And we know that when the Aztec Empire was sort of all over the place, uh, right before the Spanish uh, invaded, they were trading things like obsidian and uh, shell and cacao. So that's why we're trying to sort of bring those concepts into more ancient societies like the, the Maya or Teotihuacan. What about hairdressers? Do we see any barbers? Do we see any hairdressers, massage therapists, makeup artists? Let's, I would say, I would put them into category. We know that there was a very special role of like a healer. So thinking about oh. wellness, you would have somebody that was, that had played a sort of spiritual role, but also very, very much about uh, curing illnesses or, um, you know, doing propitious things to generate, um, favorable uh, agriculture or, you know, these types of things. So I don't, you know, certainly we have great portraits of people and you definitely would have had some pretty spectacular hairdressers, especially for the classic Maya uh, men and women, because they have some great, we've got some cool stepped bangs going on. We've got lots of uh, high ponies. There's a ah! lot of... 
There's a lot of great hairstyle in the classic Maya art. So we know that there would have been people that specialized in that. And we also know that body ornamentation was, you know, and maybe even tattoos or scarification. So there was this, there was a whole probably industry about it. But I like to think of it as multi layers because these things also had a spiritual dimension, right? So, um, you like, for example, oh, and I'll tell you this one of the fascinating things about Mesoamerica is that when um, babies were born, often their heads were bound so that it would actually push the cranium up into a form that was referencing a maize cob. So it's, it's about you are sort of claiming this connection to a maize deity. And so when you see classic Maya kings and queens, they often have this very sloping forehead and a very high sort of cranium. And that was because they were actually modifying the bones when uh, they were infants. And so that often, uh, it's it's nice for headdresses and other, because you, you can really do very elaborate assemblages up there when you have that uh, corn cob head to, to work with. But... Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's it, there's there there's a fascinating look at what are the standards of beauty in non-Western cultures that they're, these aren't the things that they're writing about, unfortunately. So we don't have you know we don't have this everyday kind of saying, oh, and then the hair the the royal hairdresser came and did that. We have some of that I feel like in ancient Egypt and other places, but for the Maya, they were really focused on their historical and sort of uh, supernatural events. So we can only just sort of hypothesize about the the beauty people that would have swirled around these royal courts. They always say trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room. So you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys's room. Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? 
is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. So because this is like this, like Mesoamerica is going from like 2000 BCE all the way up until like now, but until the Spaniards come in like 1500, I mean, this is like what I heard you saying at the very beginning is that there is waves and there is cycles. Like there are certain areas kind of rising and falling. And is all of that due to just like a a myriad of things? Like it could have been illness, like a drought. It could have been a government, you know, or someone passing away. It just could have been any given bunches of things that could have caused that, right? Yes. There, there, like, for example, we see around 900 AD, the cities like Tikal and Kalakmul that I mentioned, it's clear that something happened. It's, it's a combination of things. It's political factors. It's environmental factors, because we see from the archaeology that there was a, a pretty bad drought throughout the Yucatan Peninsula at that time. Um, it could have been also conflict. You know, it's, it's thinking about people and these competing claims, right? And you have we have evidence of warfare. We have evidence of conquest and burning and, and all of these things. So um, we can imagine that just like societies we know in other parts of the ancient world, um, there were these rises and falls. And so around 900 AD, people move away from places like Tikal and Kalakmul. And the rulers there, whatever authority they had was no longer working because they're not they're not able to build things. So they're not marshalling people like they were before and maybe people are still living around there but it's um i like to think of it as kind of things sort of dissolve and then recombine in different ways so for example have you ever been to chichen itza for example it's in yes near near tulum okay so yes that is a maya city but it has so many different things going on architecturally because it's a little bit later so we see people kind of migrating around and then they come around this and then they go here and then they go there so chichen itza has kind of a mix of styles from different time periods and that's what we can see is that these different ideas um come together and we do know that uh in the tropical sort of jungle really where they're building these cities in the maya area there were problems with overuse of the land. We see erosion in the archaeological record that would have made it a problem to have drinking water, for example. So Mm. we do know that there were sort of man-made anthropogenic causes for these types of uh, migrations and abandonments of places. So, but uh, yeah, you're right. There there are a lot of different factors. So eventually, does the Aztec, people come in and take over everybody? Is that like the end of the Game of Thrones story, like before the Spaniards come? Essentially, yes. Um, We have the Aztec Empire really takes off around the 1300s. So it's it's later than what we were talking about with the, the Maya kingdoms. But there were millions of Maya people living in the same area, just in different types of cities, right? And so we know that, for example, the Aztec traders went all the way down into the Maya area in Guatemala. Guatemala actually is the word for the place of Guatemala comes from the Aztec language because the Aztecs had a name for it. So they would come and get quetzal feathers, cacao. They they were trading these things from 
other areas. But um, really, they 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 had this imperial system in which, so here, I, if I'm the Aztec lord, I come into your city. I don't burn it to the ground and and kill everybody. I, I say, who's in charge? Okay, you can stay in charge, but you just have to pay us tribute. So it was this type of hegemony that uh, worked for them, and they were able to establish these networks of local governors, right? And so you have, when the Spanish arrive, they were the major players in Mesoamerica, although it was still a very multilingual place because, like I said, the Aztecs didn't really impose a lot of things. They just, so you would have the local languages being smoked, even if they were sending cotton or chili peppers or jaguar pelts as tribute to the Aztec emperor, which, of course, the capital is Mexico City today. Uh, the Aztec capital and the sort of sacred precinct is right under the main plaza of Mexico City. And so there's some really exciting archaeology being done because the Spanish just came in and sort of dismem- you know, they, they dismantled the pyramid and built the ca- cathedral right there. But the earlier layers are still there. So we have some wonderful colleagues in Mexico City doing essentially urban archaeology, but they are finding these wonderful offerings that are telling us a lot about how the Aztecs conceived of their capital as this mythological place. Did people like escape south when that happened? Like were people able to like get like to South America or something? And then also this is like a two question, so bear with me, but I just read this article about this gigantic city from around the same time, but it was like outside of St. Louis and like it was called Yeah. And then and they were just kinda like partying it up and like they were like like the articles just like can't really tell a lot about it, but like we can definitely tell that like they were eating tons of deer and like getting down. Did anyone ever like escape that far up, like from Mesoamerica, or did people escape down? Like, did like what happened when it, like when everyone got sick? I mean, I think um, there it's a that's a whole other hour we could talk about. But um, I, I would say this: we because of what the colonizers were recording, we don't know the extent of how people interacted because those networks were disrupted by disease and by warfare, right? So, But I would say, think about um, marine shell. Like I mentioned before, that was a really important commodity that was traded. So we see people at Cahokia importing marine shell from the Gulf Coast. And we see people in the Southwest importing marine shell, exporting turquoise to the Aztec Empire. And for example, we see scarlet macaws showing up in Utah because of the ancestral Puebloan people trading with peoples from Mesoamerica. So we have to imagine that, let's say there's a book out there that I recommend to students sometimes called 1491. And it's put yourself in just before everything changed, right? Before this, the Americas became really the first global nexus. Because you think about the Caribbean, that was where everything came together in the first instance. So let's think about all these, these peoples were clearly connected. So when the Spanish arrived, did people migrate north and south and uh, escape, as you put it? Like, yes, probably, but we don't have those stories. And we do see very powerful societies that resisted colonization to the present. So there were some peoples that were able to, whether because of uh, landscape or, um, you know, military prowess, were able to resist that and say, we're not, we're not playing this game, um, Spanish folks. So we, we, we see that there was 
there were a variety of ways that people, the indigenous peoples adapted and uh, have been very resilient in the face of colonization for centuries. And so, uh, for example, in Mexico, you see today, you know, millions of people still speaking indigenous languages uh, and not Spanish. And for example, in parts of um, Central America, we have fully somewhat autonomous indigenous communities that are sort of subsumed under the modern nation state system, but are doing their own thing still. And so um, you, you see that there are these popular narratives that everybody was kind of wiped out or, but it's, it's, we're seeing that that's just not true. And with more evidence from cuisine and anthropology and linguistics, we see that these indigenous concepts really shaped how a lot of peoples live today. Um, and so th that's that's the, another exciting thing about working on the archaeology of Mesoamerica, because we see the ancestral traditions living today, and we uh, collaborate with our colleagues in these countries so that the descendant peoples can connect with the archaeology that's going on. Because it's, and, and often, for example, in Peru, um, one, the, the major indigenous language in Peru is Quechua, and it was the language of the Inca Empire, Right. And what we know is that looking at the archaeology, you have to know Quechua to understand what's going on in the material record because there are such foundational, different concepts of landscape and relationships with people that only by knowing that indigenous language and, and collaborating with indigenous interlocutors can archaeologists really make arguments about what's going on in the deep past. So there's there's this really great opportunity to work with local communities and and be informed by these practices that and these languages and these concepts that can lead us to better understandings of peoples in the in the far far past. So I love that you mentioned that book, 1491. What are some, if people are at this point in the podcast and they're like, I am so interested. I am so titillated. I'm about to go and roll up in this class somewhere. Uh, I mean, especially with the art, because I mean, we didn't even get to get there as specifically as I meant to, because I was just like so obsessed with everything that was coming <laughs> in my brain. And I like, and I'm just now getting to like my art questions and I'm like, oh my God, this is a whole other podcast. But where can, which I kind of do want to have you back for another one about like what happened when they came. What do, do we just need to have you back to have like a whole other thing about like art and then what happened when the Spaniards did come? Do you feel like do you know about all that? You do know about, about all that stuff. Yeah, sure. You and, can't help um, it. Is it? Is our I'll talk about it all day. I mean, episodes <laughs> are just yes. It's just that our ancient episodes are so fascinating. You could never do it in an hour's time because. There's just so much to cover, but we do have a little bit more time and we can yes. still do that. But I just want to have this one more question. So sure. like with this art, cause there's so, I mean, there's sculpture, there's like, you know, kind of art in caves. There's like also hieroglyphics, which in and of itself is kind of, it's art, it's picture. Yeah. Um, oh, but, but I, you kind of answered, it's like, we can't like impart like our Western understandings of it, but like, so, but there was artists and was there like was there common artists and then also like you know royal artisty people like was there a, a different styles and obviously there was there was different eras yeah I think you know what I love about studying Mesoamerican art and art of the Americas in general before European colonization is that we see a totally different 
history of art. And, you know, there aren't these, you can't use terms like naturalism and surrealism and, you know, they don't, it doesn't fit. And what I love about, you know, some people talk about the invention of abstraction and it's like, no, we've got abstraction in the second millennium BC in the Olmec civilization. What I love about it is the artists are clearly making choices. They're not choosing to faithfully represent, say, a jaguar or a puma. They're stylizing it in a way that's meaningful to them. And that's these, these distinct choices that artists were making in, you know, it's not that they didn't know how to naturalistically sculpt uh, a jaguar. It's that that wasn't meaningful to them. So how do, how do we get at those other questions? What, why are they making these distinct choices? So I'll, I'll go back to the, the Maya kingdoms again, because that's, again, where we have the most information. And in that context is the only time we see artists signing their work. So we actually have named artists from classic Maya monuments and painted ceramics. So we, we know there are a little bit more than 100 named sculptors. And what's clear is that from certain sites, they worked in an atelier-type structure where there was actually a, a, someone in charge. So there's like a head sculptor, and you have several other people working on the same monument. So you could, if you see a large standing monument, you can think of it as there were maybe like four or five different hands. And you, and you wonder, like, was this the guy that was assigned to do faces because he was like really good at faces? Or was this the person that did all the glyphs? all the hieroglyphs because they just were the scribal, you know, artistic license to do the little phases and, and do the dates. So they worked together on these monuments and even with the painted pottery, because for example, um, drinking cups, like classic Maya canvases were drinking cups. So you look at these beautiful ceramics oh. and you see that's where the painters are going to town with different supernatural narratives or portraits of rulers or just texts. Um, so you think about they, and then they sign their work and it's about the, 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 it's not necessarily like just their name. It, there's a little bit of a, a title that refers to knowledge. It's about these are the keepers of knowledge and these are the recorders of knowledge and history. So back to your question, were there artists? Absolutely. But did they have, again, like multiple roles in their communities? Maybe they were artists and healers. Maybe they were artists and um, stone carvers. You know, they worked on more architectural features. So um, we don't know if there were sort of like Renaissance-type artists and patrons, but we do know that they were clearly very important to these royal courts and they were valued for their talent and some in some contexts they were actually able to to claim that you know by signing the work so uh, i mean i have learned so much james i usually what i would do at this point in the podcast is i would give you like a yogi recess to like tell us like something that you would just be remiss like to not mention over the last you know hour and 10 or so minutes but I think you accidentally just got yourself booked on like a second episode of Getting Curious because <laughs> there's just so much more we have to go through. And I think at that time, I will offer you a yogi recess unless there's something really genius that people should be reading about or doing before you come back to really like get their Mesoamerican knowledge one before you come back. 
Yeah, I would just say that there are a lot of great popular texts about the history of places like Mexico and the Maya kingdoms. So, you know, your your listeners should be uh, excited to go out and read that. And uh, I think in a post-COVID reality, I would say, get yourself to Mexico City, go to the National Museum, go to Teotihuacan, go to Guatemala and see Tikal and these places because there's a sense of awe that's difficult to convey in conversation or just images. It's when you're standing on top of one of the pyramids at Teotihuacan, you just feel that this is such an important place and there are such rich stories waiting to be uncovered that that's the that's the exciting thing about working in archaeology right and thinking about what what more can we learn about the human experience from these different places and different peoples at different times so it's yeah it's Ugh. there's a lot to talk about James Doyle, we're having you back because I need to hear more about like literal archaeology, like more of like what actually happens. And I need to hear like all about the art and the eras and the phases of the Mesoamerican art. James Doyle, thank you so much for your time and coming on Getting Curious. We just love you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's great to meet you. And I look forward to our round two. Yes. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was James Doyle, a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freaked by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. We sure do appreciate it. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. And what we're doing there, honey, is we are following all of our past guests. We're following up on their new work, their new projects, also keeping you up to date on other news stories we're watching. I mean, really just giving you some behind the scenes of getting curious. We love you so much and we appreciate your support. Our editor is Andrew Carson and our transcriptionist is Alita Boonsha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick. 